so good to see everybody on this cold day. Uh, I was just sharing with somebody, you know, why are we surprised, right? It's Chicago. We complain about it, but we're no punks, right? We, we can take it. Um, thank you all so much again for being here. Thank the staff and thank Chicago, our, the city club, the city club of Chicago staff. They do a great, great job. some pre-submitted questions and I have some questions that have just been rolled up. Um, word to the wise, the earlier you get them up, the better chances we are getting the mask. We're going to try to get to all of them. I've asked Paul to uh, get up here and do what he has to do so that we'll have time for questions and he's actually looking forward to them. So uh, without further ado, in the spirit of being fair and non-biased, are you coming up already? So, in the spirit of being fair and non-biased, I'm going to direct you to our website. Partially because I want you to go to our website. Secondly, because you'll get to see Mr. Vallis' bio there. I don't think there's anyone in the room who does not know or has not talked to him and know a lot about what he's doing. Paul Vallis has dedicated much of his life to public service, and we've heard him speak at the City Club. How many times have you spoken, do you know? Uh, too many times. Okay, too many times. He has served at just a few things, Executive Director of the Illinois Economic and Fiscal Commission, Revenue Director of the City of Chicago, Budget Director for the City of Chicago, CEO of Chicago Public Schools, and Superintendent of Schools in Philadelphia, New Orleans, and Bridgeport, Connecticut. I am going to decrease from here so that he can come up. If you have questions, um, yeah, I'm getting close to capacity, so good luck with that. And um, I, we will try to get to them depending on how much time our speaker takes. I present to you all Mr. Paul Vallis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I also want to salute the staff for serving us all. Let's give them another round of applause, please. Uh, I just want to say I miss Paul Green, as we all do. God bless Paul wherever you are. He always told me, keep your remarks short because people want to answer questions, so I will do that. Had the pleasure of working with Paul for so many years. Met him first with Don Clark Nitsch down in Springfield, and he was a legend. Um, there are so many people, uh, so many friends in the crowd that I like to recognize, but I'm only going to, first of all, acknowledge Alderman, uh, uh, Alderman Beal, wherever he is. Who, oh, right in front of me. <laughs> Let me tell you, visiting his ward and looking at what he's done in his ward, I've learned so much of him. And, and the number of things that I'm going to talk about uh, right now have, have been impacted by those visits. That doesn't mean he's endorsing me. So I don't want, as if, you know, as if he's afraid of retaliation, right? But at the end of the day, he's done a great job. And let's give him a round of applause. I am going to recognize my wife, uh, who actually works midnights at TSA, so she really should be sleeping right now, but she came out to, to keep an eye on me. Uh, I have the easy job. I'm running for mayor. She has the hard job. Uh, she works um, the, you know, um, the graveyard shift, so to speak, while she takes care of my mother, and she watches over her two 88-year-old parents. So she has a much tougher task. Thank you, my love. But she is a grandma now, or a yaya, for the first time. So my 
Now, if we can only get my older son married, I think we'll be in good shape. But uh, it's a real privilege to be here. Um, Chicago's a great city whose greatness is no short a reflection of its diversity and values. A city celebrated for its dynamic institutions, the majesty of its lake, distinctive neighborhoods, and its rich, colorful history. And yet this city is slowly drifting into crisis. Whether it's crime, rising taxes, combative leadership, or the mass exodus of its residents and businesses, it's fair to say that we are in fear of the future of our great city. Crisis calls for change. Change not only rooted in pragmatic and sustainable solutions, but outcomes worthy of our hopes. We must be optimistic, equitable, and accountable in our vision for the future, ensuring that we do not repeat the history that has deprived so many of reasons for maintaining hope. And we must move urgently to build the vision we have of a flourishing city for all. In order to grow into a thriving future, our first priority must be to make Chicago safe for everyone. We can either grow from within or attract from outside without a safe environment for all to live, work, learn, and prosper from an ethos and ecology of well-being. It is therefore imperative that we address the pressing need for public safety amidst the dramatic increase in crime. Consequently, I want to preface the main subject of my remarks today with some comments about public safety. Public safety is a human right. And one of the primary jobs of government is to safeguard it as a public right. Public safety is not, in my view, simply a matter of law and order. It's a larger state of well-being. Public safety is not merely a containment strategy from law enforcement. We must acknowledge that that approach has resulted in many Chicagoans seeing the police as an occupying force. This must change. And I have, for the better part of three years, through postings and through op-ed pieces in the Tribune and the Sun-Times and other publications, I've been dealing the plans to put our city safety first. I'll quickly replace the Chicago Police Department's leadership with leaders that the rank and file have trust and confidence in. And I'll end the friends and family promotion policy, which has undermined the quality of CPT leadership. I'll, re I'll reorient the staffed up, a staffed up and properly resourced, trained and supervised Chicago Police Department to true community-based policing, where every local police beat, every CTA platform, every CTA station is covered with officers who know the community that they're serving and are known to the community. A policing strategy that is conducted as a partnership between the community and the police with officers who know and understand the priorities, the history, and sensitivities of those who are sworn to serve and protect. That is the essence of 21st century policing. That is the broader objective of the consent decree, a self-sustaining, 
transparent and accountable law enforcement agency that delivers 21st century policing in partnership with the community it serves. Simply put, the current department and city hall leadership is failing to meet the objectives and the key requirements of the consent decree. Requirements like restoring police strength, like putting police on a normal, humane schedule, like making sure that there's the proper supervisory ranks of sergeants to officers, like dealing with the health and welfare, the mental health and welfare of our officers. Remember, the consent decree, the consent decree is a floor. It's not the ceiling. I'll provide the police with the leadership, resources, and support they need while providing the infrastructure needed to transform the department into a best-in-class contemporary organization. For communities to be in well-being, officers serving in those communities must themselves be supported and sustained in wellness and professionalism, and that will happen in my watch. Now, while the dramatic increase in crime over the, over the last three years demands our immediate attention, simply returning to 2019, to the, uh, to the crime levels of 2019, is unacceptable. It is critical in this moment that we do not divert our attention from the real issue at the heart of so many of Chicago's problems, the pervasive, historical neglect of Chicago's most underserved communities, most particularly on the south and west sides. <laughs> Policing will always address the symptoms, but never the root causes for crime in historically underserved communities. We must remember that crime is a whole city problem that calls for a whole government solution. I therefore join those who call for a second Burnham plan whose objective is to lift the very communities, these very communities, these very long-neglected communities, into thriving, self-sustaining, locally-owned commercial enterprises, coupled with the collective institutions necessary for a state of well-being for all who live in those communities. I'm not talking about community economic development of the nature of the Southwest Side initiative. This initiative is, in the end, a, a 21st century branding of a failed 20th century approach. It is top-down, it is transactionally oriented, it is politically fashioned, it's a politically fashioned aspiration uh, for promises that have remained undelivered. That is because the 21st century approach was fostered, has fostered and reinforced the inequities in these communities over the past decades. No more so has this been reinforced in communities of color, where government has generally failed to provide a safe public environment, nor has it supported the development of local economies prioritized and owned and sustained by those who live within those communities it serves. The 21st century community economic development in this community must be forged in the in a prioritization of the needs and wants determined by those who live in those communities. It prioritizes contracts and partnerships with local businesses and organizational leaders 
conducting their work for the benefit of those who live and work in those very communities. And it results in ownership and control with those who will continue, who will continue on within and from the communities that is its legacy. Neighborhood revival should not be about neighborhood displacement. This means devoting investments that reactivate and grow the community from within and benefit long-term those who reside in those very communities. Our vision for the 21st century development is based, is based on five things. It centers around the following approaches. First, we need to create an independent community development authority composed of community-based contractors and organizations that would drive economic development. It would operate free of city hall politics, of the fifth floor, and of aldermanic privilege. The determinations of what must be done will not be dominated by LaSalle Street and the Department of Planning. Rather, it will be grounded in a community-based process drawn from community leadership rooted in asset-based community development processes and objectives. The independent CDA, along with the community partners, can renovate homes, finance small businesses, provide microfinance loans, develop industrial parks, financially uh, finance locally owned and operated social services. There is a precedent here for such an approach. The current Chicago Neighborhood Initiative which along with its community partners has renovated hundreds of schools, launched a microfinance loan program for small businesses, and developed mixed-use sites with anchors. The CDA can become a driving force behind economic revitalization in the long-neglected communities on the south and west sides. The Chicago Neighborhood Initiative offers a model for the CDA. It's already beginning to show success in revitalizing underserved and distressed urban neighborhoods like Pullman, Austin, and Englewood. We will have to make sure that the mission of the CDA is not slowed or obstructed by the inevitable headwinds of the prevailing way of doing business. Doing so would involve the following, using the collective budget and purchasing power of the city taxpayers' money, $28 billion in annual spending a year, across the city and sister agencies, directing contracting city agencies to prioritize local businesses and in the, their procurement decisions. This prioritization should occur at the prime and subcontractor level. The city should leverage existing and more traditional contractor vendor relationships to have them serve as partners or even mentors to these fledging neighborhood businesses. And it must remove the and it must remove the obstacles for hiring people within the community who are returning citizens and who have in effect done their time and need to be provided with the support and assistance to be reintegrated into the economy <laughs> critical to this approach will be working closely with our partners in labor whose unions will benefit from the jobs created by this expanded development enterprise to open the ranks to this new and expanded population of community-based workers. The second thing in our vision of 21st century economic development is the need to create a fair share investment fund to hold and reinvest public and private monies 
for second and third generation reinvestment. That starts by institutionalizing a fair share approach to city economic development resources by requiring that a portion of TIF revenues, a portion of TIF surpluses, a portion of uh, all the developer fees, a portion of casino uh, uh, revenues, a portion of sports, all sports betting and gaming revenues, that they be dedicated to the South and West Side Investment Fund. These are the very neighborhoods that have received little financial help over the years and have been at the receiving end of predatory lending practices going back decades. This role-tested financial vehicle has been touted in recent years by former alderman and now policy guru, guru Amaya Pawar as a means to put money where our mouth is, in equity and in community development. The Municipal Investment Fund would hold a dedicated city revenue funds and extend commercial mortgage loans. The CDA projects would be prioritized with an emphasis on business and family homeowners. CDA funds could be used and held in a dedicated account in a citywide municipal bank, a concept that also advanced by POAR and endorsed by others running in this, in this mayoral election. And that would extend community purpose loans to lower interest rates, uh, at lower interest rates that the homeowners could secure from private sector banks. Besides helping investments in these communities, the loans would improve the city's balance sheet because the municipal bank would capture the profit that private banks presently keep for themselves under the existing arrangements. These profits would then be available for new loans and community investment. In what often feels like a zero-sum environment, this is a true win-win situation for all. Third, we will implement a strategy to reclaim and repurpose vacant and idle property across the city's south and west sides. The goal is to create a, a city land trust that goes beyond the purpose and the operational capacities of the existing land housing trust that currently only focuses on housing. The city land trust, this broader land trust, would be expanded to include closed industrial sites, shuttered business corridors, vacant property and support, and it would support their develop the conversion and the transformation of these developments into locally owned performing assets. TIF bond proceeds, for example, could be used along with eminent domain to secure all vacant residential properties and vacant lots to be turned over to local developers and community organizations for development and affordable housing. The CDA could be empowered to award long-term property tax abatements and provide other local and state incentives on these reclaimed properties to include the prospect for investment and development. The city can provide financial support for rehab and new construction in the form of equity loans and grants. The same approach can be taken to decaying retail corridors, long vacated industrial sites, and vacant land. The proceeds from the TIF bonds could help finance the physical upgrade and the environmental cleanup necessary and sometimes absolutely critical to make this prop, uh, this property suitable, suitable for reactiv for reactivation and development. The emphasis uh, is on the creation of local ownership and wealth accumulation because it is only through local ownership and wealth accumulation that every generation can benefit because ownership and wealth accumulation is generationally transferable.
The CLT could transfer ownership in return for an equity share that would enable the CLT to build the wealth needed for future investments. Fourth, we must recognize that the economic development must be supported by an ecosystem of wellness and a framework of well-being. Communities and community well-being are not defined simply by crime reduction and economic development. They are defined also by access to resources, mobility, green spaces, and communal space. They are a reflection of the residents' organizations, cultures, and history that make it unique. Under my administration, any major community economic development must include an agreement that takes into account the cumulative environmental impact and commits funds to social service infrastructure as part of the redevelopment itself. A A thriving community is a healthy community, one that is sustained by wraparound social services, opioid and addiction crisis, mental health, reproductive health, and family health services must exist and be accessible in each community and be owned and staffed by those who reside within the community. It also requires that we address the physical and structural barriers that prevent community members from attaining holistic well-being, like food deserts, inadequate safe neighborhood public spaces, and degraded urban forest canopies and green spaces. Lastly, we must keep in mind that the healthy communities are also clean communities, which means empowering, empowering ward sanitation superintendents with the resources they need to keep our neighborhoods clean. Finally, we need to regard those returning from incarceration, returning citizens as assets that reflect the larger historical disinvestment and neglect in marginalized communities. We must elevate and empower those undervalued men and women into full and productive economic and community participation and standing. It is critical for the redevelopment of so many of our communities. There is an abundance of adult education and occupational training and support service providers available to significantly expand the qualities of services for the displaced adult population and provide education and occupational training alternatives to those who are incarcerated, to those who are returning to the communities. We documented those very programs and support services when I did work for President Obama's, at the time, U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates on education and occupational training reform in the federal prison system. The key is to organize these, or, these services and these programs to make it easier and to prevent redundancies. An adult education and occupational training network should be created to identify and coordinate community-based adult education and occupational training programs already operating and to expand those programs and to add additional programs based on best practices. The network would identify, mobilize, coordinate, expand service providers while building a data dashboard to increase access for those in need of those services. The focus will be on securing high school diplomas and on providing certified occupational training skills to the chronically unemployed 
and those who have previously been incarcerated. This requires a holistic and integrated governmental infrastructure. And in a city with a strong union tradition and foundation, the path to the middle class for returning citizens must lead to and through our partners in organized labor. <clears throat> Over four years ago, working with Claire Munyana and the late uh, Judge Marilyn Johnson, we, artic we articulated just such a plan and circulated it to all the powers that be. They love the plan, but given the fact that they didn't communicate very well with one another, the plan went nowhere. This will be a priority. We have neighbors, we have neighborhoods where almost half, half the men are in some phase of the criminal justice system. They are in one way or another returning citizens, and we have to address this issue, and it has got to be part of our economic development strategy. So in closing, so in closing, John F. Kennedy said that a rising tide raises the level of all boats. What we must add is that his vision demands that you have a place in the boat. Today, unfortunately, too many Chicagoans do not. Chicago has failed to support inclusive community development that brings historically disadvantaged and neglected into the ark. It's time for a change. We are trying to do, what we are trying to do here is to create the infrastructure for change. The infrastructure that is literally on autopilot. The infrastructure that is independent of fifth floor political priorities, or for that matter, any other obstacle that can interfere with the focused development of these long connected communities. An infrastructure that lifts and nourishes all of our all of our neighborhoods by nurturing small business and minority-run organizations in their infancy and ensuring that ensuring adequate representation through the entire economic development life cycle. The great mid-American, the mid the great mid-century American theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, once said, nothing is worth doing, nothing that is worth doing can be achieved in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Our great city is in crisis. Now is the time for action. As your mayor, I will do everything in my power to foster that hope, the hope in the heart of each and every Chicagoan, while we work together towards a better and safer city, where all share in the city's great wealth and prosperity. Thank you very much. So there were a few questions that were answered via the talk, so we're going to go kind of lightning round, except I have one question. Hey, Kamau, where is he? I know he's in here somewhere. Do people like play tennis in this weather? Do they go outside? Indoors at XS Tennis. Indoors at XS Tennis. See, did you see that plug there? Did you guys get that plug? Indoors at XS Tennis. Kamau is the owner and, and has how many, how many tennis stars have we produced at this point? 57. And notice I said we. 
Um, so we're going to kind of go lightning round here because okay. we got a, a, several questions. Marty Fiasconi, who was my table mate today, says business interests in Chicago. Um, your policies seem well thought out and logical. Setting aside policy, can you give us some of the principles that get that guide you, and some of the events in your life that should have, that have shaped you as a person, and will guide you on your path to mayor? Yep. Well, I'll tell you my experience as Mayor, Dar- Mayor Daly's budget um, director during the 90s when I think the murder rate was approaching 1,000 was there is there's no substitute for public safety. Uh, if you remember, he instituted his community policing initiative. We put a record 13,500 police officers on the street and we focused on beat integrity, community policing in its purest form. And the murder rate dropped by well over 60% over the years, obviously not at a level satisfactory by any means. So there's no substitution for ensuring that all communities are safe and secure. But, you know, my experiences at City Hall also led me to appreciate the power of the city budget as an economic engine. So when I took, when Gary Chico and I had, had the privilege of taking responsibility for the Chicago Public Schools, we saw every school budget as an opportunity for community investment. You know, enrollment grew during that period by almost 40,000. And it's now 125,000 fewer. I mean, we were opening schools to address overcrowding, but we did it by replacing the prefab schools with brick and mortar schools, mostly on the south and west sides. We did it by putting magnet programs in community neighborhood schools. And we also did it by allocating our budget in ways that help promote minority and woman-owned businesses. 55% of the, our $3.2 billion school construction program actually went to minority and woman-owned businesses, and 58% of those hired were minority and women, and union, the unions cooperated with us because we had project labor agreements. I say that, I say that to point out, and incidentally, look at the schools we built. Gwendolyn Brooks, Walter Payton, Westinghouse, you can go through those schools that we built in record time, 70 school buildings in six years. I say that because the competition made what we were doing more effective, and the competition helped develop businesses that would have never had an opportunity to develop had we not taken that approach. Imagine the ability to take that $28 billion that the city controls, that the mayor controls all the governments within the mayor's responsibility and to transform that budget into a community, into an investment vehicle. Our problem is our budgets are not investment documents. They are dependency documents. And our whole thrust, whether it was at the Chicago Public Schools, when we grew the district, which is why we left the district with almost a billion dollars in cash balances, or the approach that I've articulated today is about transforming your tax dollars into investment vehicles because the only way our taxes, uh, we hold the line on taxes and we lower taxes as, as if the city grows. So budgets have to become growth of, of vehicles. And that's what I've learned and that's what I've applied to my practices. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to do that in like 10 seconds. seconds. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, Kevin Waco, are you here? Rex Construction. Omar, he's way in the back, you know, in the good seats. Yeah. God, I don't know how fast you can get there, but, you know, you already know. Okay. Um, any thought to cutting council in half, treasurer and clerk into one spot? 
That's the question. Well, look, I'm a big supporter. I am a, you know, and indulge me just for a second, because this is a really important question. I don't have a problem with 50 aldermen, but I believe that those aldermen need to be empowered to do things, like to have the resources to provide for basic services and rewards. Because really, what we have is we have, look, uh, if you look at Alderman Moore's ward, uh, he has the same population that they have in Calumet City. Yet Calumet City has seven aldermen. All right. So, so we have to understand uh, perspective here. What I want to do is I want to transform the city council into a co-equal branch of government. So I embrace the concept of a city charter or a city constitution that will govern our budget, that will govern our, the relationship between the city council and the mayor, and that will provide the city council with the resources to serve, to provide that check and balance. Because look, you know, I, I like to joke that, uh, that Chicago is like Rome. Sometimes we have a great emperor and sometimes we have a mediocre emperor and whatever, you know, you can pick the emperors, you can do a lineup. And then we have the Roman Senate, which doesn't have much power at all. But we need to strengthen the city council. We need to strengthen the city council. We need to give them more responsibilities and we need to give them the resources and the access of information so that they can provide independent analysis. So they have the capacity for independent thought and they have the ability to provide the critical check and balance. And that will be a priority. I'm a legislative guy. I can't help it. I got my start with Don Clark Netsch under the great Phil Rock in the Senate. And I've always recognized the power of the legislature to serve as a check and balance on the executive. So much for my plan for lightning round questions. It's okay, though. Don't worry, you know. It's your mic. Dwayne Deskins, former U.S. attorney. I know he's here. What will you do to reduce police suicide and improve police morale and public confidence? Well, you know, as you know, I've done, you know, many, many op-ed pieces. Um, you will restore police morale by doing, uh, by doing the following. One is getting a new leadership team that's really promoted from within the department and jettisoning the friends and family promotion policy, which has people being promoted into exempt ranks, many of whom have no business being there. That in itself will restore morale. If you do other things like put police on a humane work schedule. Somebody told me the other day, you're working a lot. What are you working like uh, 12 uh, campaigning, 12 straight days and 12 hour days? I said, yeah. I said, uh, the only people working harder than me are Chicago police officers, you know, no, <laughs> because their schedules are killers. You put them on a normal schedule. You push them down like interim superintendent Charlie Beck did or wanted to do. And of course, the great Terry Hilliard did back in the 90s when he was when he was Daly's um, um, uh, police chief, police superintendent, pushing the police down to the local beach so that they know the communities they're serving and the community knows them and they're not being shifted all around the city and allowing them to feel that they can be proactive, they can be responsive and not be penalized. Ask any police officer on the street and ask them whether they feel that they're going to be covered if they're chasing somebody who violates the public way or, or basically destroys public and private property or goes in and walks out of a steals from a store or, or assaults somebody on the street. Uh, if you change that dynamic, I'm convinced that, uh, 
that it will it will improve police morale, which in turn will improve police mental health. But what it'll also do is slow the exodus of officers. We lost another thousand officers last year, and we lost a thousand officers the year before. I believe that that will slow the exodus and allow us to play catch up. We have also have got to deal with this issue of police mental health issues, just not police mental health issues. Talk to the CTA about what they're putting up with because the CTA is unsafe because half the riders believe the CTA is unsafe because they are leaving in record numbers like the police department and the CTA cannot replace them like the police department or for that matter, the paramedics. So the cons- one of the consent decree uh, the uh, mandates is that we address the issue of mental health and wellness of Chicago police officers. And we are not. In my administration, it'll be a priority. All right, folks, my plan of speed is just shot. So it's okay. Um, just don't come for me when I don't get all these questions asked. John Katanzar, are you here? Okay, so maybe he's online. I'm still going to ask the question. Um, I think everybody knows who he is. Fraternal Repeats, Chicago Lodge 87, number seven. Um, should city council be able to override the mayor? Well, you know, the city council can override the mayor. But but unfortunately, the city council isn't provided with the information and resources to really sometimes make an informed judgment. Look at the parking meter deal. Look at the Skyway deal. Look at the casino deal. I mean, plopped at the last minute on their desks, vote up or down. So, you know, you've got to give the, you've got to do for the city council what they did in New York when New York almost went bankrupt or they're on the verge of bankruptcy. You've got to really have an independent budget office or a combination of budget office and comptroller that can provide the city council with the information it needs, almost like the congressional budget office, so that they can scrutinize spending. They can look at programs. They can look at the budget, scrutinize the budget. They can look at these deals that are simply plopped on their desk where they like literally overnight, they either have to approve or not approve those deals. So it's it, the city council, this could be a strong, dominant city council if the city council had access to the right information and the ability and the analytical capability to really analyze and evaluate that information. And that will happen. We will create, we will restore the balance. We will restore the balance. We'll create that check and balance, which can only be constructive in a city this size. I'm just going to do a couple more just because, and there are a ton of good questions here, but um, Alvin Boutte, Bronzeville Academy, he's over there. Um, what are, table one. What are some of your ideas to encourage corporate America to come back into downtown? Well, three things. Well, my focus today focused on, you know, uh, uh, focused on the long historically underserved communities because they have not gotten the time and their attention, nor have they uh, have they seen proposals that are substantive uh, and and that are comprehensive? And, you know, I've also done a series of op-ed pieces on the downtown. Let me tell you the, first, the things that absolutely have to be done. My overall public safety strategy is to restore police strength to the levels that you had in, in, 13, in um, 2019. And if you do that, you will be able to, and you push the officers down to the local beat, you will be able to Restore the 120, 150, 200, 200 plus officers that have been stripped from those districts. And if you restore the first and 18th district, 
uh, to the strength levels, the pre-2019 strength levels, indeed, the pre-Rahm Emanuel strength levels, and you allow those officers to enforce the law, to enforce the law, I'm not talking about stop and frisk, I'm not talking about mass incarceration, simply to basically enforce the law when they are being broken and serious crimes are being performed. And if you keep them at their local beats and you don't simply move officers all around the city like they have a tendency to do, I believe that you will be begin to restore public safety, which is the critical, critical, every single business group that I've talked about, not just downtown business groups, but when I've talked to people on the south side or west side, in the business community, it's public safety, it's vandalism, it's theft, it's uh, uh, their private property being defaced, or it's their workers being afraid to come to work, and in some cases, the customers being afraid to shop. So at the end of the day, public safety is issue number one. Number two, you know, I think so much of the COVID money has been squandered. I I, I still believe that there are businesses in this city uh, who, because of governmental neglect, whether it was excessive COVID mitigations or for that matter, for that matter, it was the failure to help companies that have been damaged during the riots and during the unrest. I have always felt that the city needs to have its own FEMA fund, its own relief fund to help those businesses when they are the victims of bad government policies. We rebuilt an entire school system uh, with FEMA uh, through our negotiations with FEMA. And, and they not only in New Orleans uh, reimburse businesses for the the, the, the uh, destruction from the hurricane. They also reimburse them for their income loss. So I think second thing. And the third thing is we got to get a handle on property taxes. I mean, let's face it. Property taxes have risen almost $900 million since 2019. And despite $6 billion in COVID monies, and are your streets every, are our streets any safer? Are schools any better? Now, has the city become more affordable. So we've got to look at capping individual property taxes, homeowners, residents, uh, people who own apartment buildings, businesses, because getting hit with sudden massive 30, 40, 50% increases. And of course, it's having a, a punishing effect on the businesses that have, obviously many businesses have been reassessed. But look what it's doing in the gentrifying communities. It's driving people out of their homes. Those three things are things that we have to do right now. I'll tell you, though, what could be done, the crime and the, uh, and the schools and the affordability issues aside, if the city just, just had people in the planning department, in the buildings department, in housing, who knew Chicago and who knew how to expedite uh, contracts, how to expedite zoning, how to expedite per- permitting, because we could have 15 cranes in the sky uh, employing thousands of individuals, generating millions of dollars of tax increases, uh, of, of uh, tax revenues, but we are literally impeding developers because city, the, you know, the crime, the, uh, the high property taxes aside, the city has a bad reputation for doing business. So simply removing the obstacles to get to getting these developmental projects out the door would be a step in the right direction and would send a signal, would send a signal to people outside Chicago that Chicago is once again a friendly, attractive place for doing business. Okay. Just know that we had some really great questions. You got issue with it? Take it up with Mr. Vallis. So, I'll hang around. 
I was going to ask Alderman Beal, and I was like, yeah, no, can't get in trouble there. I don't get him in trouble. Yeah. This is Val. And then I was going to ask Christian Ivey of the William Everett Group, but yeah, he's really my cousin. So I thought I'd play it safe because we want to be, you know, fully disclosed and compliant and everything. So I'm going to ask former assistant minority leader Tom Scott Cross to come up. Did I call him Scott? So Scott is his brother, who's a really good friend of mine. Man, I'm just messing up all around. Would you come and do today's drawing for us, sir? Close your eyes. So today's drawing is um, a $200 gift certificate to Chicago Cut. <laughs> so <laughs> Representative Cross said, ooh. <laughs> um, Veronica Reyes, are you in the room? <laughs> Come on up. Veronica is Chief Development Officer of the Resurrection Project. So Amanda, we'll get you. Okay, we'll get a, we'll get a picture in just a second. Okay. Um, so, Mr. Vallis, here's your uh, annual—not your annual, but your year-long. Um, it's almost annual. It's I almost, have a whole wall of these, by the way, and mugs. <laughs> I would um, like to thank everyone for being here. Um, we are working to make sure that we're using your time um, wise and uh, want to make sure that you all are able to get back to your desks and get back to work. Thank you so much. Uh, did I leave anything out, Dan? I feel like I'm leaving something out. We are adjourned. Thank you so much. We appreciate you all being here. Thank you so much.